so. We're going to be, as I was just mentioning and just read, Mark chapter 13. This is known as the Olivet Discourse uh, because it was given on the Mount of Olives. This is a mountain that is about 2,700 feet, or not about, it's 2,700 feet above sea level. So it is opposite the temple in Jerusalem, and so actually it's a higher mountain. It's about 200 feet above uh, the temple mount. Uh, and here they are, Jesus, is they're on the, Olivet, or the Mount of Olives looking down at the temple. Jesus has just left. If you look at, look at verse 1 again, and as he came out of the temple... This was Jesus' last time there. He is leaving the temple to never return. And not just never return, he's predicting some extraordinary events that are to come. Jesus is leaving the temple, and he, as he leaves, it's kind of a mark that put, Mark puts on there. And, and, and for us, as we try to interpret, as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's very difficult. You're like going, you heard some names in there. You're like, abomination of desolation. What is that? You're talking about women who are pregnant, and we need to be praying that it's not winter. Like, what is happening in these passages of Scripture? It's exactly what I've been asking of myself as well as I've been studying this week. I told a couple people, you know, I said, uh, theologians and, pa- and other pastors and just scholars over the years have called this the Olivet Discourse. Uh, discourse and I'm like, I call it just really hard. <laughs> it's been really difficult. Uh, it is the most challenging uh, passage in the book of Mark. It is, uh, it, it almost is like a, a, a riddle. There is a weaving that happens, but also I think there's some real clarity this morning. Uh, there are various views on what is happening and what events are is, in fact, being talked about, is the question this morning. Obviously, we're, the question that they're asking is, is about the temple. So determining, all right, in this chapter, we only read the first 23 verses. That's what we're going to cover this week. Next week, we're going to cover the rest of the chapter, at chapter. But in verses 28 through 31 as well, I did not read them um, this morning. Uh, if we have time, we'll, we'll, we'll probably look at them this morning. I believe that those, those verses there as well are what's, this passage that we're looking at are talking about as well. And the other passages are talking about a second coming, the second coming of Christ. So this morning we're going to do our best to kind of walk through this together uh, and, and notice some things. You'll notice there's a word used, and it's actually used very, very often. And really what we see throughout this text, and again, we didn't read the whole chapter, is there's this question that we get from the disciples. Look at their question again. They're looking at the temple. I mean, you have to understand what the temple looked like at this time. It was still actually under construction, even up to the point of Jesus' day. Uh, Herod the Great had started to double, really almost double the size of the temple, of Solomon's temple, uh, as it was built. And so as it uh, was being erected and expanded, it was ginormous. I mean, it's this huge, it, it took up like I think a sixth of the actual city. I mean, this is giant. And you have to remember in the context of this, Jesus has been at the temple. It's still Tuesday as this is happening. This has been a, a, already a long Tuesday from a teaching perspective. Uh, we started this over a month ago looking at just Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. But here their specific question, and this is what helps us with interpreting. What does this mean? So basically what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this together, and then I'm going to have about three or four uh, application points of how we're to live uh, this morning. But first, just looking, kind of walking through it um, together. What we see, and what I've come to 
where I guess I would say my stance comes on what I believe that this is talking about. There are various people. I, I, re- I Multiple commentaries that I read as I study Mark, uh, specifically some of the top uh, commentators on the book of Mark. And uh, some of those disagree. One has one view. The one that I've actually studied probably the most and used the most as a resource for me uh, differs uh, from, I would say, from me and from others. Uh, There are various views. For one is, is this talking only about the destruction of the temple? Or is this also talking about, especially when we get to the abomination of desolation, is that talking about future events like really distant future events, like second coming of Christ, tribulation, revelation type stuff? Where I have landed this morning, and this is why I would encourage you to bring your Bibles, this is where I have landed, this is an interpretive thing, but I don't think what my point this morning is going to be is whether direction you take with this, it does not change uh, how we apply this to our lives this morning. Um, But where I've taken this to believe is the section that we're looking at this morning is about the destruction of the temple, even the abomination of desolation. And there are various views on this, as I mentioned. You can feel free to do more study on this if you'd like uh, than I have already done. Um, But here, notice a couple clues that help us with trying to interpret this. Notice verse 1 again. Here they are. They're leaving the temple. There's kind of the mark of saying, like, they left the temple. And one of the disciples of the many, they're on the Mount of Olives. They're looking down, and they're noticing the beauty. I mean, you're talking about so much gold. Like, it would almost blind you when the sun is shining on it. It is very brilliant. It's massive. I mean, they were saying some of these stones alone are like multiple um, buses in length and weighing over a million pounds, some of these massive stones that were used in the building of this. I'm like, I don't even know. How do they do this without cranes and all this stuff? I don't really know. The marvel as you look at uh, the pyramids and all those kind of things, the marvel of, of people's ingenuity even thousands upon thousands of years ago. But here's this massive, beautiful building. This is the, you have to remember, the temple is the center of Judaism. For the Jew, this is it. And this is Passover week. So we're talking about 500,000 or more people coming to Jerusalem, coming to the temple to offer their sacrifices, to worship and observe Passover together. This aspect of once a year. And here are all these people. And there's just everyone. I mean, can you imagine though? Like if this is, if you're a, a Jew and you're, you know, you're one time a year, you're coming to Jerusalem and you're coming and you just come and you're just, you're probably blown away by the beauty of the temple. How massive it is, how beautiful, how ornate it is. You can get more descriptions if you read it in your Bibles in the Old Testament, descriptions of what uh, the temple looked like. And here they're looking down, notice what it says, and they're looking down and what, what did the disciples say? One of the disciples says, What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They're looking down and they're just kind of having a moment of looking at beauty. And Jesus (laughs) stops their moment and says, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. If you're Peter, if you're James, you're John, you're Andrew... You're hearing this. You're looking. This is the center of worship for the Jew. And Jesus is saying, they're like, man, look how beautiful. And Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left on another. It's going to be destroyed. It's the temple of doom. It's going to be destroyed. 
And so, naturally, they're probably going like, what, is, what does this mean? And for the Jew, you have to understand, too, and they, if they're hearing that the, the temple is going to be destroyed, their mind is also probably thinking, that's the end. That's it. It's over. Like the end of the age. Like Christ is, like, like the Messiah is coming and we're starting a new kingdom in heaven and earth. All, like, like they're, they're, they cannot picture life beyond the temple being completely and utterly destroyed. And so here it says in verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, so the four, these four, these two sets of brothers, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now notice those words that are used there, these things. They are directly asking about what Jesus has said. But what I was saying earlier about their connection of the temple and them, him saying this is going to be destroyed and the second coming, they kind of see, they see these two things of like the end of the age, you know, that Daniel refers to and that other prophets pointed to, uh, end of all things. And, and here's the, like all things being in, like the end of the world kind of, the end of days happening. They're connecting that with this. Matthew in his parallel account connects both the destruction of the temple and the question, meaning they're asking kind of both. But here in Mark's version, we're getting kind of the one direction. What is, it, what is the sign of these things? The, you're saying that there's going to be one stone left upon another. Well, what's going to be the sign? When is this going to happen? And now notice how Jesus responds in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. So they asked for signs. Okay, right? They're saying, when's this going to happen? You're saying the temple is going to be destroyed. There's not going to be one stone left on another. When are these things going to happen? And notice how Jesus responds to him. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, you've heard of those phrases, right? We think of those as signs of the end. Like, hey, there's rumors of war and there's wars. But reality is there has been forever in the history of humankind that we have of recorded history, there's only been, I think someone noted, there's like been like less than 200 years where there was complete peace in recorded history to what we know of. You're talking about wars after wars after wars. And here he says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, notice what he says next. The tendency would be like, oh, maybe that's the sign. When you start hearing about wars and rumors of wars, what he says, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. So he says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but that's not the end yet. That doesn't mean that it is the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. See, this is just pointing, like, this is just pointing to, yes, it's coming. But it's just the beginning of these things. And then he says in verse 9, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Then I want you to hear this. So when you're trying to take this as an interpretive, say, what is Jesus referring to? Is he returning to a second coming, or is he returning to the destruction of, of, of um, the temple? 
as you read this language, you start to hear that he's really referring to the temple's destruction because he's saying, hey, you will be delivered over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. What does that sound like? If if you're a little familiar with your Bible, the book of Acts is what that sounds like. The book of Acts, this is what happens. We see over and over again, Peter, James, John, uh, we see Paul, we see various disciples, all of them. What happens? They get arrested. They stand before a council of Sanhedrin and they declare the gospel to them. And then they're beaten and sent on their way. We see Paul, he's going from town to town, being beaten, kicked out of towns, being stoned, all these things as he's going. And eventually he's trying to get in front of a an audience, and he's trying to get to Rome and declare to Caesar and others. And that's what we see at the end of the book of Acts. The very end, that's where exactly where Paul is. He's in a prison cell, waiting to be seen, and he's hearing. And, and, and even if you read the last four chapters of the book of Acts, you get to see Paul getting to declare these things before various leaders. All of these things pointing ahead. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, verse 11, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Then he says, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Listen, in, in the time leading up to the destruction of the temple, in A.D. 70, I mean, that is clear as day in history. It's not a, a Bible thing. Um, the Bible doesn't, when we look at these, these stories that are written and the letters written, most of these are happening before the destruction of temple. Mark itself was written before the destruction of the temple. But notice that like, what happened during this time is exactly what happened. There was revolts. Uh, there was, um, uh, you remember the zealots? We, I talked about them a few times. Simon the zealot is one of the disciples of Jesus. The zealots had led multiple revolts even before Jesus kind of came on the public scene. But after Jesus had ascended in the, around A.D. 66, right before we get to A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple, there was multiple revolts. And what was happening is the zealots were getting upset with other Jews and the various ones, and they were even doing some of these things. They were telling on each other. Brothers being handed against, going against brothers and others, family members, telling on their own kids for their own sake, to spare their own lives. He says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And then he gives an imperative, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then we get to our difficult passage. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. You might be going like, maybe I've heard of that before. Or maybe not. Probably not. But in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 11 and chapter 12, Um, Daniel talks about this and using this language. So this word, abomination of desolation, is coming directly from Daniel. Uh, And what we find out from history, kind of in the the pages of history before we have, you remember there's a silent kind of period between the prophets and the last prophet to when Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels. Well, during that time, there were various revolts and other, uh, other attempts and different things. And so in 1 Maccabees 154, again, it's not a, a biblical book, but it's, it's used ever so often with history. And in that, it describes a, a character named Antiochus Epiphanes. 
And Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian general who in 168 BC, so 168 years before Christ, okay, as we, as we follow, so BC, not AD. The Syrian general, he comes into the temple and he takes, goes all the way into the Holy of Holies. For the Jew, this is the, the you know, like this is the mercy seat. This is where the, the sacrifice is often offered one time. Only the high priest is allowed into this. And here comes this general, this heathen general, the, Syria, uh, the Syrian general. He comes in and he erects an altar to Zeus. And on that altar, he sacrifices a pig, desecrating the temple. And so in partial fulfillment of that event, we see that with Daniel talking about that. Here is this moment in history in 168 BC where there is this desecration, this abomination, this abominable act, this desecrating of the temple when he comes in. But there seems to be a dual um, prophecy here of fulfillment, like it was partially fulfilled in that moment when this Syrian general comes in and desecrates the, the altar of God and, and puts a, an altar to Zeus and burns a pig and sacrifices a pig on it. But what we see here also is that we know from history that Titus is a general who comes in September of A.D. 70. And as he comes in with his army, he sets, one of his soldiers actually sets fire inside the temple. They come and they're going to squash. This is during the, the Jewish uh, revolt and the Jewish wars that we have read about in history. Jo Josephus, uh, Tacitus, and others have written on this as well. And here comes the, the, jo the, the Roman army and they come in to completely devastate Jerusalem. They literally do exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. They come in and they completely ransack it. And I, I mean every bit of it. They burn it down. And so remember there's all this ornate gold and all those things. So when these fires were set, it was, it was starting to melt the gold. And so they're trying to do that. And they're destroying every stone. They're turning them all over. And they destroy the temple in all of Jerusalem. Desecrating it. Jesus prophetically is saying, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, and then even he puts in this, it seems like this is not Jesus saying this, but probably Mark putting it in, but we don't know for sure. But let the reader understand. It's this aspect of, for the Roman audience that Mark is writing to, hey, let the reader understand these events are happening. You remember maybe even the uh, Epiphanies, Antiochus Epiphanies, and what happened there with the desecration. It's going to happen again. And then Jesus gives a warning and even shows concern. He says in let the one is who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. You've probably heard me say, uh, especially Nero, Nero um, after he, before he committed suicide, he was a brutal, brutal um, ruler. 
and trying to kill off all the, I mean, they're trying to squelch the Jewish revolts that were happening. And during this time in history, as Josephus writes, on average, what they were saying was that there was about 500 crucifixions a day happening in and around Jerusalem during this time. But you know what's actually remarkable? I, I did not know this until I was studying this week. I would not heard it this way, but I, I read it in multiple different places from the different historians and, and reading through some of the commentaries and various ones that, in fact, most of those people on those crosses were not Christians. They were the Jews. They were Jewish, but the Christians, many of them had actually already fled that many of them had fled. They had actually heeded the warning here that Mark mentions in this passage that Jesus is saying, man, like, let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. I mean, like, man, like, this is going to be devastating. But you know what? I, I said it earlier. You might not have caught it yet. But you know when this happened? Eighty, seventy. It happened in September. It didn't happen in the winter. And sure enough, many actually were able to flee. And even as we see through the book of Acts, what do you see? You see the gospel spreading all over the known world through the, through the persecution, that spreading them, them leaving Judea and leaving it and going as far as we've heard of Thomas getting to India. As we see Peter uh, working in and around Jerusalem in the areas, and as we see Paul spreading throughout the Mediterranean uh, area and along the coastlines and all the way to Rome. We see the gospel spreading into Turkey and various areas. The gospel was spreading to the known world at that time. And notice what he says in verse 21 again. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things. Notice these things beforehand. They had been warned about the coming destruction of the temple. Now, I'm not going to just say like 100%. This is only about the destruction of the temple. As we'll see as it transitions in verse 24, there's, there, there, you, you can't read 24 through 27 without thinking about a future date beyond um, the temple. But I mentioned earlier verse 28, and I'm almost, I'm almost getting us to our application, but I want to help um, address all of this as, as briefly as I can, but clearly. Verse 28, Jesus, again, referring to the fig tree, says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, notice this, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if this is only future, that, that's not accurate. If this is just about the second coming, well, the generation did pass away. They have all died. They're gone. I mean, 2,000 plus years ago, or, you know, 18, like, we're talking about thousands of years ago, this generation passed away. They had moved on. They had died. 
And he's saying that truly these, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus is talking here, I believe, about the destruction of the temple that happened in A.D. 70. But as we look at the rest of the chapter, next week we're going to talk about the second coming. Talk about the future uh, that Jesus does address in this chapter as well. So where do we go from here? Here's the question I think I want to try to answer this morning just briefly here is, how do we live in uncertain times? How do we live? Yes, if these events already happened, happened, like how do we apply that to our lives? What can this mean for us? I think there's a lot of principles that we can still take place, take from this. There's in fact 17 imperatives uh, found in chapter 13. 17 commands of Jesus and calling us to action. Specifically, kind of putting them together, I believe, I'm, we're going to look at four this morning, just briefly. One is this, how are we to live in uncertain times? Number one is this, is believe, put your trust in God. Believe in his word. Trust in him. You see, Jesus makes a, I want you to hear this. For those of you maybe that come, kind of come skeptical and you're like, I, this stuff's confusing to me. You're, you're saying this, and actually, I just leave more confused than I, than I, come, than I came with this morning. Yeah, I, wanna, I want you to see something this morning. I mean, you can trust God. And we're called to believe in him. You see, I think there's something remarkable that happens in this passage of Scripture. Because there was zero people predicting, zero people predicting the, the, the temple's destruction. There was no other so-called uh, um, so messiahs and various figures that were arising during the day saying, the temple's going to be destroyed in X number of years or whatever. This is unique to Jesus. Jesus saying, the temple, not one stone is going to be left on another. This is unique to him. And when Mark is writing this, I believe, and most, uh, almost all scholars believe that the writing of Mark happened uh, in the late 50s A.D., so about a decade before these events, some, some believe that it leads right up to 68, 69 AD as well. But here, what I mean by that is this. Here's Jesus making a claim and then Mark and the disciples putting it into our Bibles that we have, putting it down on paper, saying that the temple's going to be destroyed. And what happens in AD 70? Sure enough, the temple is destroyed. The unthinkable happens. Jesus is looking at his disciples and tells them that not one stone of this temple. And history records that these events did, in fact, take place. We know this to be true. So today, if you're not a Christian, let that sink in. Mark doesn't mention the destruction of the temple happening. Most scholars believe, again, Mark's writing from Rome to a Gentile audience. Even saying, let the... Let the um, let the readers understand and trying to help them understand what is happening. And Jesus says in verse 31, I read it just a second ago, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Listen, you can trust God. And we're called to take him at his word. What would it look like for you to take him at his word? 
Say, I believe what God has to say. That when Jesus has spoken, when the Gospels are written, that when God speaks, he speaks truth. Here's this fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus claims that the, the temple, it prophesies the temple will be destroyed. And we have that from history that it in fact happened. We know it's, it's not there anymore. You can go to Jerusalem and see. Take him. Trust him. Put your faith in Christ alone today. He is trustworthy. You can trust him. He is faithful to his promises. He is all truth. We shouldn't delay. I believe another lesson for us and another uh, imperative really for us and how do we live in uncertain times with the chaos that we read about that was going to happen for the Jews in uh, 70 AD as the destruction of the temple was to take place. I believe we're, not to, we're called to not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Jesus is saying these things when he says, see that in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. There's a lot of warnings in the Gospels and in the letters written in the New Testament about warning us against false teachers and various ones. If you read the book of Acts, you can see how people like Simon Bar-Jesus come up on the scene pretending to have the power of God and pretending to be this, this healer and various ones. And they come up and they're these false messiahs. As 2 Peter, in chapter, in chapter uh, 2, in 2 Peter, uh, Peter writes multiple times in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter about warning against false teachers. In Acts chapter 20... Luke writes, and he says, keep watch. He says, after I leave, savage wolves will, one, uh, will come in among you, among you and will not spare the flock. Even among yourselves, people will arise and distort the truth. The Bible warns us about having itching ears and people having itching ears and, and, and being deceived by various teachers and saying, oh, do this or do that. And what do you see in our culture today? You see various people who are claiming to be a, a person of God or a, a pastor, and here they are. They're claiming to be uh, Christ followers, but what do they do? They're all about themselves, and they're calling people to, hey, if you give, God will bless you, and if you give this and you give that, all they're wanting, they're here to make money. There's various ones who lead people astray. When you think of the various religions that try to claim that they follow the Bible, but yet have extra texts to say, oh, but if you do this as well, and if you do that, and you do this, also included or outside of the Bible to follow this. The call is to not be deceived. Here he's saying, don't, don't, don't focus on the signs. You know, I think sometimes we can tend to do that, right? When, when a, a really strong earthquake happens in our world, you're like, oh, maybe it's time. Maybe the Lord's going to come back tomorrow. You know, I heard, heard California's going to just fall off, <laughs> right? It's going to just fall off all of a sudden. And like, oh, Jesus is coming back next week. I know it, right? I mean, I think that the Jehovah's Witnesses over, like probably about 10 different times have claimed various times when Jesus is going to return. Still hasn't. Each one of them wrong. Yeah, there was a, a book written in 1988. I was six years old. Uh, it was written. I did not read that one. But, <laughs> uh, but in, in 1988, there was 88 reasons why in 1988 Christ will return. Well, 
As you can see, I'm still standing here, and I was, I was six, and I'm not six anymore. And there's over and over again, 2012, the Mayan calendar, all these things. Oh, like the end of the world's going to happen. Or, you know, the Y2K, if, if you were old enough to, to go through that, like our computers are going to just fall apart and Christ's going to return then. Sure enough, he will. But no, somehow our clock still worked. <laughs> the computers kept working. <laughs> Don't be deceived. In this area, it seems like many get deceived. There is many a cult that has been started and many people who have taken their lives in mass suicidal events because of being deceived or someone saying, oh, like, oh, I should, you know, like, like polygamy and all these things and saying, it's okay to have this wife and that wife and all these things. They're deceiving. And the warnings of scripture is don't be deceived. And and Jesus even said in his own words, don't be deceived. Thirdly, how to live in uncertain times, I believe, We're called, we have to remain faithful in the midst of pure persecution. I mean, here, as Jesus is writing, we see some strong language about what the disciples were going to experience. Listen to it again. He says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And when they bring you, in verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And even here in verse 12, remaining faithful, even in the midst of betrayal by your loved ones, he says, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated. By all for my name's sake. Verse 23, be on guard. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away. There's a call to remain faithful. I'm not great at alliteration, but some people are, and this one's a little, maybe a little extra for you. But Vance Havner said this, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. I know that's a little catchy there, but faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. You see, true saving faith is an enduring faith. That's why he says in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see what marks Abraham? Why is Abraham so commended throughout the Bible and quoted throughout Scripture? It's not because his faith was perfect. We, we know the opposite. <laughs> he lied, saying, this is, this is my sister, Sarah, his wife, because he was worried. He didn't really fully, like, it's like he would trust in God and he did amazing things that he, we, or he is commended for his faith. But his faith wasn't perfect. But you know what his faith was? It was an enduring faith. It was a lasting faith. He trusted God throughout his days. You see, we're, we're to remain faithful even in the midst of persecution. If you ever have the time to read the stories in the Fox's Book of Martyrs of various ones who have been brutally murdered and killed for their faith, where they stood firm and they endured such persecution that is awful to even read and think about. 
When you think of the disciples, God's chosen ones to follow him and to begin the church age and to lead in the spread of the gospel, all but only one that we know of, John, all died a martyr's death. Some beheaded, some stoned, some sown in two, as you read even in Hebrews 11. And hearing what happened to the various ones, how some were tarred, some were burned at the stake. You can read over and over again. But these men, they believed wholeheartedly God's word. And so they believed and put their trust in Jesus. They were willing to go to great lengths, even to the point of death. Because what Jesus said was, don't fear the one who can take your life. You know, we can worry about what happens in the Middle East. And we can worry about terrorism and who can, who, like all the persecutions that happen even to this day. We, we think, man, in America this seems so far from us because it is so far from us. But it happens every single day. Christian after Christian martyred for their faith. Jesus tells us don't fear the one who can take your life, who can hurt your body. He said, though this, he said, fear the one. Who could cast your soul into hell? Who could cast it into the lake of fire? We're to fear the one who has control over our destiny. Listen, someone can take your life in this life, but that's just your body. That's just what happens to your body. But your soul, what matters most, is where it will spend all of eternity. And here he's saying, don't be deceived by these things. Trust me. Remain faithful. Listen, I will be with you. Listen to the promises. I will be with you. I will speak through you. My spirit will speak through you. Remain faithful in the midst of persecution. And finally, it's kind of a mouthful here, but fourthly, it's more of a statement here that I wanted to end with. Is, and listen, we can be confident in the power and purposes of God, even though we may not understand all that is to come. I will be the first to tell you, I do not fully comprehend all that's to come with end times. Many people devote their lives to it. Many people are fascinated with it. This is why, I mean, I think nine of the 15 or 16, however many books, the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, and all those books that were written, I mean, like nine of them made them to like the, the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, people are fascinated by the end times. They're fascinated, fascinated by what will happen, what's going to happen, what will that look like, when will it happen, all these things we don't know. But we can be confident in the power and purposes of God, even though we may not understand it. The disciples may not have understood what Jesus was saying when he's saying the temple is going to be destroyed. But he was ensuring them that he knows what the future holds. You can trust me. Listen, you can trust one commentator concludes and says, the disciple is not called to eliminate his ignorance of the timing of the end. But he's called to cope with it and respond to it appropriately. See, I think we can get so focused on what will happen. When will these signs be? What does it look like? What will happen? What is it going to be like? And we can devote ourselves to all this time, but here's the call and really the big theme of this passage is, is be watchful and be faithful. Like, listen, all these things are going to happen and it, it's ugly. It's, it's really ugly. There's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of bad things and terrible things that are going to happen. But listen, endure, trust, put your hope in me. I will take care of you. Listen, we can trust
you and I can trust him. Listen, I read, I mean, I don't know how many various commentaries and different things on this passage. And one even pointed out how, how this can help us even see the last three chapters that we're going to look at in chapter 14, 15, and 16. How Jesus' own temple, as he comes, his body is going to be desecrated. He will be beaten. He'll be mocked. He will spit at. His beard will be ripped at. They'll put a crown of thorns on his head. They will take the Son of God and they will mock him and they will hurt him. And they will take him and nail, pierce his hands and his feet to a cross. Jesus does not stop him. He allows it because he knew that this was the only way for us to be saved. That he was going to be the payment for my sin and your sin. That his body would be broken for you and for me. And he invites us to trust him. Take him at his word. Put your hope in Christ alone. And his promise is sure that he will come back one day for you. And if you die before he comes, he will take you to be with him forever and ever and ever at his side. Listen to that promise. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Dive into his word and see what he has to say and put your trust in what he alone has done. This morning we're going to observe communion together and go and remind ourselves of what Jesus has done as a church family. But first, as we do that, I want us to pray. We're going to sing a song. It's an old hymn. Jesus paid it all. But I want to ask you, like, you know, as we think and reflect on this passage of Scripture, and as we wait with anticipation for His return, how are we to live in light of those things? Let me recap them. Trust Him. Take him at his word. Don't be deceived. Don't don't be tricked. Listen, this is why I would say, bring a Bible on Sunday. Don't let me somehow on accident even. But listen, don't just take me for, for just like, yeah, whatever Eric says goes. Listen, take the Bible and let God's word speak to you. I want to do my best to give you the Bible. I, I'm an expositor, not just a speaker. I want to give you God's word. Take him at his word. Study his word and Test it against what people say, myself included, against his word. Don't be deceived. Remain faithful and trust in his power and his purpose for you and for my life. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word to instruct us, to guide us, Help us. Some things can be confusing. And God, you know, you know my heart. I, I, I would never want to deceive intentionally um, or misinterpret your scriptures. But I, I do believe whether this is the destruction of the temple or your, com- your second coming, that the, the principles and the takeaways for us are still the same. 
we follow these imperatives that you give us in this passage that applied so directly to the Jews in first century, but also apply to us today. I thank you that you came and lived the life that I should have lived perfectly without one sin and died on a criminal's cross and was placed in a borrowed tomb and three days later rose from the grave we thank you for Christ and his atoning work of sacrifice for us and his resurrection to give us hope of eternal life with you forever more with you God, I thank you so much for this. Thank you for the church family, the bride of Christ, as we journey together, as we walk uh, with you, as we sing together. God, may we reflect on what you have done for us today. We trust that for all, it, all of our days. We ask this in your son's name.